All right, welcome along to the RT Soccer Podcast. Raf Giallo here. We have lots to get through today, including looking ahead to Ireland's double header of fixtures against France and the Netherlands, the end of Vera Pau's tenure as Republic of Ireland women's manager, and then a bit of League of Ireland and the Champions League draw as well. I'll be joined by former Republic of Ireland women's manager Sue Ronan a little bit later on. But right now, I'm joined today by former UCD Sheffield Wednesday and Shamrock Rovers midfielder Paul Corey and the 42.ie journalist David Snade. Uh, lads, hope you're both keeping well. Cheers, Raf. Thanks, Raf. All good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad now. Not too bad. And uh, we're straight into a pretty busy uh, period for the, the senior men's team. Of course, live coverage of Ireland against France at 7pm Thursday. That's RT2, RT Player, and then RT2 FM's Game On, and then also on RT.ie slash sports as well. And then, of course, Sunday, it'll be the turn of the Netherlands, and that will also be all live on across uh, RT platforms. But before we start on uh, on that, we have to talk about uh, Evan Ferguson's goals at the uh, at the weekend against Newcastle. So not often a young 18-year-old Irish player scores a hat-trick, Paul. And, you know, you look at the goals, a poacher's finish, a thunderbolt, and then that deflected uh, deflected strike the the first goal arguably though was probably the more important in terms of the the type of goals if he's going to become a regular goal scorer they're the ones he's going to be snaffling up a fair bit yeah they're the ones you're you're correct in saying Raf that I guess the strikers who consistently hit that kind of 20 goal a season mark seem to be cleaning up on and it's an instinct that you can't really teach to to players it's just one where you kind of sniff out where the the potential opportunity lies and I mean he was so quickly onto it and put it away very well but I mean each of the goals had something different about it like the the second where he's able to get a turn on on Dan Byrne and and just guide the ball into the corner and then the other one off his left so just so much to his game I, I know like probably for the last six months we've been a bit tentative about bigging him up and, and putting too much pressure on his shoulders but we're at a situation now whereby you can almost sit back, relax, and just watch this career take off because he has so much to his game that there's no doubt that he's going to be a top Premier League striker. Um, you know, you were talking about Newcastle had the best defensive record with Man City last year in the Premier League, and he gave them so many troubles. Uh, just so much to his game, Raf. In general, I know the goals are the ones that we obviously look at, and and as a striker, you'll be measured against that. But I just think his hold up play, his ability to turn on the ball, his ability to run in behind, he has absolutely everything to his game that you would want from a top Premier League striker. And I have no doubt that that this guy is going to go on and have a fantastic career in the Premier League. And I'm sure there's a number of people down in Daly Mount Park starting to punch the numbers about what this next transfer fee could be worth. But he's in a perfect position right now with the Zerbi and Brighton and the way they progress and develop players the environment is perfect for him. And I'm sure if he continues on that trajectory, there's going to be a big move for him, whether it be in 12, 24 months time. And Evans is going to have a top, top career at the very highest level. Yeah, so he's only the, the fourth 18-year-old to score a Premier League hat-trick. And in terms of Irish players who've scored hat-tricks in the Premier League, the last one was uh, Jonathan Walters a few years back. And uh, David, I mean, Deserby has generally been trying to keep his feet on the ground. Not that Evan needs that, because given mm-hmm. his demeanour, he's he seems like somebody who's really, really grounded. Obviously, he has a great uh, you know entourage around him, led by his family. But uh, Deserby was comparing him to like a right-footed Christian Vieri. Anybody who's old enough to remember Christian Vieri will know that was <laughs> One hell of a player. I, I don't know if the if that's the most accurate uh, comparison. I've seen others in general, but then James Milner as well, 
um, in the Athletic were reporting um, his comments afterwards that Evan set the tempo early on. He closed down and blocked the ball going forward. That might seem a minor thing looking at the game overall, but it sets a tempo. It shows yeah. his intent without the ball. And anyone who knows him so far in his young career, he's an he's an unbelievable finisher. He's a goal scorer. And when he's doing the ugly side of the game too, and being the first line defence, he was outstanding. He's still so young, but what a player for us. And the ceiling is very high for him. So as Paul said, David, I mean, the goals are what everyone's going to talk about. I mean, not everyone scores a hat-trick um, every week. Uh, not even Messi and Ronaldo, but it's he fits into the modern game in terms of his style as well. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of them where, if, like, well, he's just an intelligent footballer. He's smart. And even that comment that uh, James Milner made there, like, it is so true. It's because, like, everything matters in a match. You know what I mean? Like, those little things all add up. And if you see your young striker, who's not just happy to stay between the 18-yard 18, 18 box and wait for his chance, and actually setting that setting that tempo that is like so important. As you say, it's the modern striker you look at. You think he spoke about it, and I think it was one of the things was the BBC football focus interview when he was talking about say bits of Harry Kane's game and all the rest, where you have to drop it a little bit deeper. And obviously the system that obviously the Derby will play and what he demands of of his players, you're not going to get away with just being that striker who maybe makes runs in behind all the time and just does that one dimensional stuff. Like he is having to learn and he is let's be honest like, and the point Paul made earlier is so true like I was saying last year where it's like when he was scoring a few goals and like I saw that stat like retweeted it from up to like both the goal involvements and like only Cesc Fabregas at the same amount at, at the same age you know and that kind of gives you an, an indication not just the goals but obviously getting involved with, with goals of what's being demanded of him and like last year you're kind of thinking right like that was it wasn't even a full season you forget like he did it was not he only really came in once the Zerbi came into the job you know and like I remember speaking to him he was doing a gig for the FAO in the school in Finglas and it was just after he'd made his debut and for Ireland and the talk was oh, like January you might be going out on loan you know and that's probably going to be what what was needed I think Sheffield United you know, might have been one of the for Middlesbrough there was definitely a couple of clubs who are kind of going for promotion like, and he was even saying then, you know, if that's what's best, if that's what's needed, that's what I'll, what I'll go and do. So, and then he's, he's gotten his chance and he's taken it. And like the goal, the second goal, one of the, one of the things that stands out is just, he has that little look and I think he realises because it is Dan Bourne and it's not Shard, he kind of realises, right, he's going to drop off so I can just turn here. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, those little, maybe little bits of awareness and kind of a decision you make maybe in your head that gives you that time to know, right, it's not going to be the more aggressive front-footed defender who's going to be coming right at me. It's going to be the fella who hasn't got pace and is going to want to drop off and isn't going to want to get spun and torn straight away. Like that little bit of awareness, boys, in the time. And then the finish, it's just incredible. Like Because it's not even, do you know what, it kind of actually reminds me of a few of the goals that Lauren James scored during the World Cup where he doesn't have to absolutely smash it and blem it and think right I'm going to just try and smash it as hard as I can hit the target the way he kind of puts his foot through it and just caresses it and guides it, it has got the power obviously to 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 go in but it's just arrowed in like it's just so controlled and that kind of just control and that kind of awareness just kind of sums up all different parts of his game like although there was one moment in the second half I'm sorry in the first half where he's bright and broke and he just plays a pass I can't remember who it was just behind his teammate and you're kind of thinking if you're being overly critical you're kind of thinking if he just plays that pass a yard on front but sure he's already scored by that point and then he puts in the performance that he does in the second half but that's probably now where because you, 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 you listen, listen to Billy Gilmore talking afterwards about what the Zerbi demands I wouldn't be surprised if one of the clips of the Zerbi I know obviously he's on international duty so he probably wasn't in the next day but like 
when he comes back, won't be surprised if one of those clips of that counter-attack where he plays the pass just a couple of yards behind rather than, and it kind of kills momentum of the move a small bit. I wouldn't be surprised if that's what he's getting shown when he gets back. Um, or hopefully he will be getting shown a couple of clips of his goals against France and the Netherlands. Hopefully we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of France and the Netherlands, uh, obviously Stephen Kenny is uh, building towards that. Now the squad was named last Thursday. I was at the squad announcement and before the press conference had a chance to to chat to, to Stephen just to, in general about the, the squad selection itself, but also the task at hand. And uh, in this clip, uh, Stephen Kenny is discussing the task at hand. <laughs> the reality is... Um... You know, we were disappointed to lose in Greece. There's no doubt about that. Um, to, to lose two one in Greece, I think obviously we came back and got a home victory against Gibraltar. But from our point of view, um, we're just one big, big victory away from the table having completely different dimension and uh, a different, you know, one one big victory playing two of the best teams in Europe, two of the highest ranked teams in Europe, France possibly the best team in the world and they've uh, been in the last two World Cup finals um, Holland very highly ranked, they're actually the number one seeds believe it or not, so the, it's a big week, great games, playing France and Paris on Thursday, Dublin here this will be sold out 50,000 and it'll be real, real two special nights um, and we're looking for that big result and we've not been far away against the top teams, you know all the games have been very very tight from Portugal drawing here and losing in the last minute and Ukraine drawing out there um, you know Scotland we swapped victories and also France here which so the, the games we've never been beaten by more than a goal they've always been uh, very very tight games and France have the capacity France be Holland 4-0 so they have the capacity to hammer anybody on their night but uh, we've got to show um, you know show show a level of organisation and and strong performance uh, in Paris, and and bring that in here and have a big not you know a special night here against Holland, who are you know they have a lot of world class players also so it's a big challenge and one that we're looking forward to. All right, so that is uh, Stephen Kenny there chatting to myself at the Aviva Stadium just uh, after he had announced his squad and uh, Paul. I mean he's right in terms of a victory in either of these uh, games against France or the Netherlands would throw the group wide open again um and also i suppose he's also correct uh in in the uh in the sense of i suppose june being particularly costly and it does throw it in light relief because yeah i guess you're coming into this september window against two of the best teams in the world really needing to, to pick up three points in one of them and you're leaving yourself with very little margin for error yeah and we're in this position raf because the result against greece out in greece <laughs> And it's very hard to get away from the performance on the night. Um, it was very poor. It was it was a notch below what we had shown in, in maybe previous games, particularly the French game in, in Dublin, where we ran them quite close. But I, I'm worried going into these fixtures, to be honest with you. I, I think, you know, when we met France, there was almost a bit of a hangover from the World Cup. They'd beaten Netherlands quite convincingly at home, and it felt like they just wanted to get out of Dublin with three points, and they managed to do that through Pavard's goal. But... I just find it hard to get away from that Greek performance um, and how lacklustre it was and how there seemed to be so little connect between, say, what we're trying to do from an offensive and a defensive point of view. And when you look at the players that France have and the potential that they have to just rip an opponent apart, 
I, I think that's probably a little more likely than us going out to Paris and, and getting a positive result, if, I, if I'm being brutally honest about it. But uh, I guess what you're hoping for is is that, you know, we, we produce a performance like we did against Portugal when we went away from home. You're hoping that the likes of uh, an Evan Ferguson or even Aaron Connie, who's shown a bit of form in Hull City, can come on and, and produce a moment of magic or at least um, give us spells within games where we can control possession of the ball and progress up the pitch. But this has all the indicators that it's going to be a, a defence first attack type of game whereby France controlled the majority of the possession. They create a huge amount of chances. And when you've got players like Mbappe, Colin Mouani, it's such a difficult place to go and, and get a result. Uh, there's so much experience, so much quality. Reach the last two World Cup finals. For us to be in a position where we need to go away and, and potentially get a result is not a position you want to be in at this stage in the group campaign. Yes, it was a very difficult group but we've certainly made it a, a far more difficult situation with the result that we had against Greece. And if we were to produce a performance like we did against Greece, expect that this would be an absolute demolition. Uh, they knocked four past Netherlands. If we showed up like we did in that game against Greece, it could be something similar. Yeah, and David, looking at the squad that has been picked overall, I mean, there aren't a huge amount of surprises. I think injuries are generally the more, uh, have been more of the issue in terms of who gets uh, picked. Obviously, Andrew Omogamadele, who we might talk about a little bit later on, he's uh, he's been added uh, at the 11th hour just with the knock John Egan had. It's it's a strange one, it is. It's one of those games, like what Paul said, like it's damage limitation, it really is. It's going in, and if there's... Ireland have to play at the absolute maximum and hope that France are a good bit off it to get to get out from the game and because of what happened it is it kind of sticks in the head just the, the manner of how disjointed and how just kind of as soon as Greece and like with all due respect to Greece when they were kind of turning the screw and it wasn't as if this was in a place where like this is one of the top ranked teams in the world you know like they have got a bit of momentum under Gus Poyet but Ireland just weren't able to deal with that pressure and the pressure that's going to be capable of coming from France is so much greater, especially away from home. Obviously, the game in Dublin, as, as Paul said, had a weird kind of feel about it. It was just a case of you felt as if France were just hoping for just that one moment where Ireland would switch off to punish them. Almost, they kind of felt as if they were just waiting for that rather than really, really going after it and forcing it. And then, in fairness, when it did come, like Josh Cullen of all people to make that mistake with the kind of the stray pass. But see, they're the moments, they're the moments that can happen in a game when you switch off and very easily, just a, a, a stray pass that maybe in nine out of ten teams you play that against, you're not going to have a fellow like Pavard who, as long as last goal before that was that unbelievable goal in the World Cup, do you know what I mean? But like a fellow who was capable of doing that. Um, and so much of that game plan, though, did obviously work for Ireland, but it's going to be a totally different ball game now. And even going back to, say, the Greece game and even in that previous squad, like there, there have been a few changes. You know, like Shane Duffy has come back in. Andrew Omobamadeli is coming in now because obviously there's going to be that deal over getting the assessment with, with John Egan. We're going to be out at Abbottstown later for the training and obviously going to be speaking to a few of the players and I'm sure there'll be an update coming from that. And that would be a serious blow if if you're if you're going to be, it's going to be your captain. Think about it, like Seamus Collins already out, your next man up, your next leader in terms of that presence more could be absent now if, if, he's, if he's struggling. And it is just set up, and obviously we started this conversation talking about Evan Ferguson. The kind of he again, he played in that France game, and he looked he looked like an eighteen year old in that game. He looked like an eighteen year old leading the line who was maybe unsure of what he needed to be doing, and just because of the level of obviously where France were at and what was actually happening in the game, and yeah, he's probably as most confident. But you also kind of need that other side to his performance because he is obviously going to be starting where you need that player who. 
those moments to get those moments of respite to actually hold the ball up, try and get you up the pitch. And then if you have that pace around, like ideally, Ogbeni, um, Chidozio Ogbeni would have been maybe playing a few more games for, for Luton and maybe have a bit more confidence in, in, in flying form, considering the job he did in that right side with, with Seamus Cohen the last time, you would expect him to to obviously play again in that same kind of position to help, try and help keep Mbappe on their on their wraps. But you kind of look through all it's mad, but if you look through even all the positive signs that are in that Ireland squad and what's happening, it's still almost just reinforces the level of where these two teams are at and just how difficult it's going to be. Like we're talking about perhaps maybe Ryan Manning possibly playing left left side of defence. Maybe it'll be end of Stevens, you know, fellas who've come back in and they've done well, but doing well in the the second tier in England as competitive a league as, as that is it's totally different now and it's at a point where like of Ireland have to somehow keep France at bay they've even though Stephen Kenny said it in that in in that um in that clip there if you're going off this campaign at the moment it just looks as if it's going to be a, a very very hard task and it's a case of personally looking at it thinking try and come out with that with a performance you can be proud of you might not get the result but have a performance you can be proud of and they, hopefully in the other game with with because obviously in the Dutch are home to Greece there maybe Netherlands could be coming in on a, on a bit of a downer because their campaign has been pretty poor so it's you just want to come out with that game in France be able to hold your head held high and hopefully Stephen Kenny mentioned it earlier they've not lost a game by more than one goal if they come away with the same in um at the next or later on this week to be doing well, you know it's not maybe nice to be talking about defeats, but you're playing against one of the best teams in World Cup finals, you know. Yeah, yeah, we'll uh, we'll drill down into some of the tactics, especially the the two wing back positions very shortly. But uh, just on Aaron Connolly, Paul, I mean, um, Stephen Kenny just in in his in his press conference on on Thursday, he did note that despite you know Connolly's good form, he hasn't ex- actually been starting games uh, for Hull, but. I was watching some of the goals he'd scored in the championship uh, this season, just over the the weekend, and he does bring a level of flexibility, especially if he is confident. I mean, flexibility in terms of formation can play off the left, or also the type of goals he was scoring, like the two he scored against Blackburn. That ability to uh, ghost into space in behind is a potential um, is a potential boon. Um, you know, on the break if Ireland need a, an impact sub later in the game, albeit granted France again one of the best teams in the world, the opportunities might not be there. Yeah, 100%. I mean, first and foremost, Raph, I'm delighted to see it because I was I was quite worried firing in his career probably 12 months ago when he went out to, to Italy and it didn't seem to work out and he was really struggling to maybe find an environment and a coach who was going to put his arm around him. And he certainly seems to have found that and he's, he's produced and he scored goals, which is what front men are going to be measured on. I think players like Aaron Connolly or Chidoze Benny are so vitally important when you play against an opposition like a France or a Holland because really what you're looking to do is soak up a bit of pressure and then rely on a bit of pace or legs to get you up the pitch. Whether that be in the first kind of half an hour or the last half an hour that Aaron might be you know, involved in the game, he is certainly somebody who can stretch oppositions. He did it really well for, for Stephen Kenny when he played in the 21s, particularly from the left-hand side, actually. And you would be hoping that the confidence that he has in his game, just his general kind of play, with with how quick he is over, say, 10, 15 yards, he is somebody who could potentially come on and cause France a couple of problems. For that situation to occur, we still need to be in the game. Um, that That is probably the, the first port of call to, like David said, kind of keep ourselves in the game, limit the amount of chances and goals that France are potentially creating, and then rely on somebody like an Aaron Connolly. And listen, he he has shown this in in 
periods of his career, if you think back to kind of the two goals that he scored for Brighton against Tottenham, he really burst onto the scene um, for, for Brighton and he was doing incredibly well. And then, you know, for whatever it was, maybe a lack of focus on his part or maybe just falling out of favour Brighton, his career has maybe remained stationary for the last 24 months. But there's certainly something in there, Raf. Um, I saw a lot of those 21 games when, when Stephen was in charge and Aaron Conning was the standout by an absolute mile. Um, you know, he certainly has the capabilities if he if he fits into hold and maybe starts a couple more games to really kickstart his career. And for us heading into these this double header with France and Holland, it is absolutely pace that we're going to rely on because we're not going to have the majority of possession in either of the games. And uh, you are hoping that maybe on a quick counter-attack that somebody like an Aaron Conley can cause a bit of problems. But I think for Aaron, you know, the next six months are going to be important that he, he continues to progress hopefully find his way into the whole team and then maybe you start to see him being in contention to start some of these games. But I think for, for you know, France on, on Thursday in Paris, it's absolutely one where you might see him come off the bench and maybe link up with, with somebody like an Evan Ferguson. Yeah, and David, I mean, you mentioned Andrew Alabamadeli at the other end um, earlier on and uh, granted he's a, he's a relatively late call-up and more likely as cover. Where do you see where, where do you see him at his career, I suppose, at, at this point in time? I mean, he's just um, moved to Nottingham Forest on deadline day, but Nottingham Forest in probably uh, mm-hmm. a, a more, in a different way to Chelsea, they bought, they bought, they bought in bulk just without spending uh, that level, level of money. So you're wondering where he's going to be in the pecking order, but also interestingly enough, uh, while Shane Duffy was getting the limelight at Norwich, uh, Amal Bamadele, while fit, wasn't exactly getting into the team there. So it's an interesting juncture at the age that he is yeah like he wasn't playing like you know what that's the part that's the reason why he wasn't in the squad like kind of even just making calls and even last week before the squad was announced and it was pretty much made clear that Duffy was the one who played himself back into contention because he was in form and it's natural as well like they I think obviously what one might, might have played a part in that obviously was the fact that obviously key people weren't going to be around the squad as well and Duffy's personality around you've probably even seen it with that video the FAI put out and when even when Aaron Connolly comes back in with Evan Ferguson and one of the first people to greet them is is Shane Duffy you know um, but with, with Omar Delhi, it's one of them where I think he's had a couple of issues with injury as well at key, at key moments you know with his back as well and like that can be a tricky one in terms of managing that and I'd say like mentally, mentally as well as physically when you have to deal with that that can be an issue you know and the AC Milan were linked with him. They were obviously, well, they were more than linked. They were interested in him. They weren't obviously willing to go and to spend maybe the money that, say, Nottingham Forest have uh, have been able to, which just, again, just kind of goes to show you where we're at with modern football and the power of the Premier League. Um, but with him, like, it's it's a strange one because we're, like, he'd be one of, it's almost mad, but he was one of those exciting players that were kind of emerging. I remember being at his debut when he came on for Dara O'Shea. Uh, against Portugal and that qualifier in Faro when obviously O'Shea had that bad ankle injury and, um, Omar Omar came in and was quality. Just settle like sometimes you know where lads just settle straight into it, and he just seemed to just grasp the opportunity, not a bother. And then in the Serbia game as well, and they had that great chance. Well, a great chance it wasn't. It was just a great shot where he, when Ireland had gotten back into the game and they were making that lay source to try and win, and he was kind of on that right side of the the back three and was and was driving forward. Like he's someone who is clearly. Is clearly a very capable, capable player, but he's like a lot of the Irish players at the moment, where they've shown that little kind of flash and sporadic kind of just quality. But at the moment, it's about sustaining it, and it's just about like Paul mentioned earlier about say Evan Ferguson. You can just enjoy watching his career take off. Like I'd say, 
like Andromo Bembedelli was the same, you're kind of thinking this is going to be one of those where he has all the tools in terms of intelligence as a defender, the physical attributes that are needed, the mentality that was needed. An injury of Ellen back at the moment, you know, and he's obviously left uh, Norwich, the club he's basically been at since he, he signed from, from League Slip. Um, and now he's going to, like, not now, obviously, he's going to be on, on Ireland duty, but if you're looking forward, forward down the line for where his career is at, He's going to be at a junction where he has to go into a club and get into the team and play. And so like it's in the Premier League, especially it does strike me. And maybe Forrest are obviously building that squad. It's going to be extremely difficult to to get in there. Like I think the fact that you can play as a in a tree, you can probably play in the center of a tree on the right of a tree, or as he showed even when he on a couple of times where maybe you can play as a right back, you know, as well if needed. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's probably part of Stephen Kenny's thinking here as well in terms of you look at Matt Doherty being having that extra suspension for the for the France game and maybe he's already kind of referenced the fact that he sees Festi Ebiselli as more of an attacking player. I wouldn't be surprised if Amal Madeli comes in and plays right back, uh oh, sorry, right wing back uh for the France game because let's be honest, it's gonna you're gonna need more defenders on that pitch. You're gonna need fellas who are switched on and he's gonna be capable of it. And then those moments where maybe in this game if if Ireland are going to be given the license to have that little bit of adventure when you get the chance. He also has the attributes to be able to get up the pitch and support too. So, uh, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he starts. But then, just after the internationals, it's just about getting in and playing games. Like there's a few lads there now that you just at they're at that stage where they just need to go play, trying to establish establish themselves really now in their careers and just try and kick on. You know, and it's such a difficult, thing. it's so difficult because the so much competition really is. Yeah, and Kenny did talk about the the right hand side of the pitch uh, with me uh, at the Aviva last Thursday, and this is off the back of as you said, Matt Doherty getting the extra game um, suspension, and it took a little while for that to be confirmed because obviously red card was against Greece back in June. The meeting... it was only late July. It was only yeah. late July. It was yeah, basically like yeah, got yeah. the thing sent out from from UEFA sent me out the details of it, and it was they had a meeting on the twenty fifth of July. Yeah, so... exactly. Yeah. You know, it's they weren't obviously expecting it. They were kind of obviously they've known about it since then, but. You weren't expecting him performing. Yeah, so here's Stephen Kenny on that. And I'm also also touching on Festi Abicelli, who's uh, been called up, still uncapped. And then the other options, which is going to be either Alan Brown or Jason Knight, potentially. And as you said, also Andrew Ombamadele maybe comes in as an option on that side. But let's hear what Stephen Kenny had to say. I, I was really disappointed with that. You know, that was... that was uh, to, be, to be honest, it's only a yellow card in my view. Anyway, the, the instant he's walked over and you know, shoulder the player who's just absolutely hit the deck and maximised an opportunity to get Matt sent off. Now, obviously, he's got two matches for that then. So it's it's incredibly harsh. Um, we've had very good discipline. We haven't had any players sent off um, in the last, in in a long time. And uh, certainly uh, we've had good discipline within the team. I thought it was, it was uh, to get two matches is, it doesn't seem... Now, it doesn't seem fair, really, or doesn't seem uh, consistent with what's happening elsewhere. So, you know, I, I spoke to the legal team, our legal team. We had several meetings on it, but in the end, they felt we didn't have a case under the regulations to appeal it. So that was it. Yeah, and was that sort of the reason why Festi Abicelli has been called up, just as cover for <coughs> uh, for the first game, at least? No, 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 Festi um, <coughs> is, um, gives us options both as a right winger and as an attacking right wing back so he obviously made his debut or his not his debut but his first start of the season against Juventus 
yeah, he come on in the second game and um, you know he's made a big move cultural move going to Italy um, adapting to the language uh, new teammates new, new style of play so you can only benefit from that you feel and uh, you can learn a lot I'm sure and uh, he has great natural attributes and he's all the time working to improve and get better and for the France game, are you looking at him as a potential starter, despite his uh, relative inexperience, or are you looking at Alan Brown, who you've used there, or even Jason Knight? Yeah, uh, you know, we've, we have a few options. Um, not too many orthodox right-wing backs there, but we've loads of players who can play in that position, and uh, we make that decision on the night because he'll have um, not a bad player to mark in Mbappe that night, so we have to make sure we get that one right. Yeah, uh, Stephen Kenny there, not wrong about uh, the task of Mark and Kylian Mbappe. So good luck to whoever um, has that role. But Paul, I mean, on that side, obviously, the folk, you know, you can focus on one player as in the right wing back in terms of the task they have with Mbappe and then also Theo Hernandez on that side as well. But in, realistically, what we saw in the game in the Aviva back in March was it was a collective effort. Seamus Coleman obviously started on that side on that night, but it was Nathan Collins. Uh, Coleman and then the the important piece in it was Ogbené sort of playing further forward but also tracking Hernandez and then trying to block the space so whoever gets picked it's going to be part of a, a collective scheme Same, I thought he might have been hoping for a two game ban Yeah it's an interesting one Raph it's, it's, it's a difficult decision to make like do you kind of double up again and try to get a more defensive minded player into that right wing back position and, and try double up on Mbappe or do you try put somebody like a Chidoze in that wing back position and try get you up the pitch it's probably the side particularly when when you mention kind of Hernandez and Mbappe that you have to go with a more defensive minded player and that's maybe where somebody like uh, Amabamadeli comes in uh you certainly need athleticism and you need legs and you need bodies around Mbappe when you play against them. So yeah, I'd say Stephen would probably go with somebody a little more defensive minded for, for Festi Abaselli. That would be a huge, uh, you know, game to be thrown into for, for your full debut and maybe one that Stephen might veer away from. Uh, I know he's been, He's been a manager who's always kind of filled players with confidence and not being afraid to put them into big games. But for me, that that's probably one where you lean on experience um, and try get somebody, and like we did in Dublin, uh, to double up, whether it be kind of Nathan Collins or, or whoever that might be to come across. Because the threat that Mbappe poses down that side, um, I know he wasn't probably at his brilliant best when when we played them in Dublin, but... If you look at his his goals per game for France, it's it's frightening. And um, I think he put in two against the Dutch when they played them early on in the group. So it's certainly an area of concern. But I mean, if you focus too much on on Mbappe, you maybe deflect the the attention away from some of the other players, and they've just got so much class across the pitch that it's going to be a very difficult battle. But listen, what we hope is is kind of what David mentioned earlier on in, in the podcast is that. We have a really good day and, and they're maybe slightly off it. Uh, hang in there for as long as you possibly can and then hope that whether it be somebody like an Aaron Conley or an Evan Ferguson uh, will produce a moment of magic or maybe a set piece and and get a result. I think that's very unlikely, Raph, if I'm being honest. I can I can see this being a kind of a 2-3-0 game before I can see it being a, a situation where we get a point from it. And then if we were to lose against the Dutch, there's pressure on Stephen because we'd be looking at a group where we only have three points and that would have been against Gibraltar. Um, so yeah, a good performance, I think, is is what we can hope. A result, I think, is is very out of reach here. 
Yeah, and, yeah. And sorry, Rafa, it's just one of the things that kind of has stuck, and it's stuck in my head, and I, I imagine it's been in Stephen Kenny's head and uh, the staff, but like Greece's second goal and how uh, Callum O'Dowd got caught out and just the gap, the distances that were between, I think I'm almost certain it was Nathan Collins, or I can't remember who it was, the left side of the centre-back anyway. Oh, Daryl Lennon, I think. It was it, yeah. And if you're looking at maybe... That's a mistake, obviously, from the centre backs, but it's also a mistake from the full back and the wing back getting cost off squared as well. Like that, that's surely going to be in in the in Stephen Kenny's head in terms of like you can't have you can't be that open, you can't be that left exposed against a, a team like France. And then the only other thing that's in my head, and again, this is like just I like wonder in terms of psychology. And Paul will obviously know this as a as a form as a form professional, but. Like, and I'm, I'm always going to heap more pressure on it but if you're looking at clinging to what what do players cling to but like genuinely when you do have a player like a Ferguson at the moment who you're now actually might only need one chance that might be sometimes lets lads not lets lads but gives players something more to actually fight for in a game a little bit in terms of trying to stay more compact when you know actually do you know what it could be worth just really, really digging in and knowing that, you know what, if one chance could come, this fella is well capable of doing it. You might have a fella up top and God knows Ireland have had that over the last year where you know, Chase, you could you could defend all you want, but you, even if you get a chance, you're probably not going to score. And sometimes I wonder, does that play into the psychology of players when they feel like, you know what, we've got a fella up there who, if we can just get him one chance and somehow, somehow do it all we can to keep France out, it just might keep Ireland alive maybe longer in the game, even going into it. I don't know, it could be totally the wrong way for me on for myself just thinking of it but it is something that you're thinking where well what can you cling to what can you actually use as extra motivation in the game to try and get you through when those horrible moments and horrible periods where you're going to be chasing shadows you know yeah you mentioned the left side um there and david and i wonder like how, how do you how do you expect kenny to you know select his choices there because you know there's the experience of mclean but as much has been made of the fact he's playing league two football probably not relevant this early in the season in terms of this specific game but then you also have enda stevens who's coming back in has relative experience and then ryan manning who has only got six caps at this stage for ireland and uh was well has had a good start to the season for southampton but then was part of a defense that got torn apart by sunderland of course the zunu yeah. part of that part of that as well but uh, you look on that side coleman or dembele um who are both handy enough uh coleman's scored in champions league finals and that dembele played in the world cup final um you know how do you ex- how do you expect kenny to go is it more experience or will he go with manning do you think i don't know me, me. Sometimes you read between between the lines. Obviously, with with any manager, and you hear Stephen Kenny talking about even with Ryan Manning, who again was out of favour in the last squad as well. I know there was personal issues as well that weren't there, but there's obviously issues is probably the wrong word. But you know, it's not it's not a player who he at the moment I think Stephen Kenny will hang his hat on. And in a game when this importance, I think it's understandable you go with a fellow who you might think you know what you can trust him hundred percent in terms of how he's going to carry out certain instructions. And for me, I'd say that, that like it's. Even though he hasn't started the last couple of games, I don't think Steve. I, I'd say James McLean could come in there again. The Stevens has come back in, and again he's playing games. He's playing games at Stoke City again. I kind of it's good to see that because he had a real tough time of it with Sheffield with Sheffield United. Like in the last game, obviously it was Doherty on that side. You had O'Shea on that side. Sometimes as well, I don't know. Like sometimes it could be. I don't know if, if lads can strike up partnerships or if they even know, but sometimes on that side of the pitch, we go, well, how do you actually work with a fella? Do they work in tandem on that side? That's going to be important as well. It's not going to be a one-man job, just obviously there'll be moments where there will be, will be obviously you have to win your own battle, but it's how you work with, with people on that side of the pitch as well. Um, so I, I, wouldn't be surpri- I wouldn't be surprised if James McLean is the one who's get, who gets a nod just because 
he's so he is so experienced, but he's also been a regular in that squad. Again, the Stevens hasn't been about it because of injury. Ryan Manning has been in and out. I just think it's it's the logical choice in terms of just in a squad that has had a lot of changes as well in terms of personnel, in terms of fellas coming in and out and all the rest. That would strike me as the as the logical choice. Yeah, so whatever happens against France, it doesn't get much easier because then uh, on Sunday, the Netherlands are in town at the Aviva Stadium and I'll be chatting to Dutch football journalist Bart Fliestra about what we can expect from Ronald Coleman's side as well as a word on Troy Parrott's new club, Excelsior. And then I'll also ask him about the reaction, if any, that there has been to the Vera Pau situation in her homeland. And speaking of Vera Pau, um, she was speaking in depth to uh, Tony O'Donoghue, the RT soccer correspondent, last Friday. And this is in the wake of her contract not being renewed with the FAI and obviously the Republic of Ireland women's national team moving into a new era. And now um, she was talking about her relationship with the FAI, some of the misgivings she's had uh, in the build up to the World Cup and then uh, during it as well. And here's a short clip uh, from that exclusive interview, which you can watch on the RT News YouTube channel, the RT Sport YouTube channel, and also on RT.ie. Um, now we came back from Perth after the Canada game um, and we had to fly through the night. We arrived early in the morning, so everybody slept only three hours. I sent them to their beds for six hours and then we were going to train. Um, and of course, the lineup in the pool. But now um, the players were tired, so the doctor told me that they couldn't train, that she strongly advised to not train with the players. But the subs had to train, everybody knows that they have to train match day plus one. Uh, but it ended up with um, that I was told, um, if somebody rolls her ankle, do you know that you can get a safeguarding claim on you? And I thought, right, this is it. I have, I'm the expert in the load of the players, and I've now been told to not load the players, which meant match day minus one, you don't do much. Match day, they did some runs. Match day plus one, no training. Match day plus two is always a free day. So at the end of match day plus three, they would train five days of Hartley or no training. Everybody knows that that cannot be during a World Cup. And I'm so proud that what we did in the gym, we actually drove with the bus a, a, a circle so that the fans would be away, so that nobody saw, because the players were sitting on the bus at that moment already. Mm. And together with Kim, the physio, and myself, we set up a program that at least the toners on their legs were built up and that the stability was built up so that they wouldn't get injured. But everybody knows that it's the, the coach, the head coach, who is the performance manager. And I am educated over 35 years and have the experience to know that at that moment the, the players who did not play had to train. But you can imagine that if all the tools are taken away from you, um, that everybody can do whatever they want to, um, you, have no, you have no tools anymore. So your authority was undermined. How did that manifest itself in terms of the players and their uh, attitude towards you or their actions towards you? Well, everybody knows that the bond between me and the players was, was so good and there was space for friction and there was space for uh, discussion and there was space for joy and there was space for laughter. Um, but now I've, I just felt the players drifting away um, in, um, in their, their, their looks to me. 
and in the way that they were dealing with it. And I found out that behind my back, all things were happening. All right, so that is former Republic of Ireland manager Vera Powell speaking exclusively to Tony O'Donoghue last Friday. And of course, this, as I said, is after the uh, non-renewal of her contract last Tuesday as confirmed by the FAI. And this was following a review into the World Cup and into her tenure as well. And uh, Paul, I mean, the initial reaction after the World Cup and during the period of uncertainty over her contract um, and then before she actually came out with her initial statement and then this interview Interview, it was all around the issue of player power but from her interview this has completely shifted the narrative now to something else yeah it's interesting isn't it because it seems like there was so much going on behind the scenes and you hear whispers of it uh, from people who maybe know people within the camp and it, it certainly seemed like all was not well but yeah first and foremost there was there was the peace with the players like it's interesting to hear her say there after that the bond was very good with the players because on the review, it seems like the players seem to have an, enough of Vera and uh, had had kind of wanted a change in the environment, change in personnel and wanted Vera out. That's certainly the way it seemed from the outside. But it also seems now that maybe there was more play and, and maybe the coaching staff were on a, a similar sort of mentality or sentiment as well, whereby they, they had maybe lost trust in Vera and... Uh, all was not well. So that that certainly didn't bode well. It didn't show in the performances though when we we're when we we're out in Australia. I thought the performances against all three teams were, were very strong considering the group that we were in and the the teams that we had to play against and just the occasion that was involved. So I thought our performances were really good. And I think from a, a purely footballing point of view, like when you when you look back at Fira's tenure and the results that she got and the fact that we qualify for the tournament, I think she's done really well. Uh, I think she can stand over those results and I think she leaves with credit in the bank. But off the pitch seems to be in an absolute disaster. Um, like they they met up very early in advance of that World Cup. And when you're spending that much time with anybody, um, particularly in that kind of high pressurized environment, it seemed like by the end of the tournament, the players were, had just had enough of here. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that certainly seems what it was like. And, and if you listen to any of the kind of the reviews that are coming out from the FAI, there's questions that need to be answered there, but you could you could probably join the dots about, you know, the sentiment of the players. And maybe there was a, an element of kind of the style of play as well, which I wouldn't totally agree with. But um, it probably came to a natural end. And maybe it's better for Vera that she gets out now, Raf, uh, off the back of a decent tournament and kind of protects her CV a bit. But it's it's disappointing to see how much it, it fell apart. And I'm sure in time, some more of those stories will probably be leaked out and you'll maybe get a bit more clarity of as to why things were so fractured. But it certainly seems like relationships between her staff, relationships between the players were broken by the end. And the fact that the you know, Eileen Gleeson and David Ams have, have stayed on would suggest that it was it was absolutely only Vera because if it was the whole management team, I'm sure they would have cleaned everybody out and gone with a completely new slate. But the fact that a lot of the people are still there would certainly point to the problem solely lying with the relationship with Vera. Yeah, and the issue of communication as well between um the the FAI and Vera Pau dating back to December, and obviously in the background as well the the athletic um uh, pieces the 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 initial one and then the the one that uh, was published uh, this year as well, David. It kind of points to issues in communication between manager and then management. Yeah, like it's it's one of them now where at the moment and at the moment it turns about communication there's a vacuum now because the FAI aren't saying anything you know like they're waiting till after the men's games these qualifiers to come up but like they're handling of it at the moment 
has been a bit strange, to be honest, and just the nature of how the board meeting was carried out and how that went on for so long and then how it was actually communicated to Vera Powell that her contract wasn't going to be getting getting renewed. And then obviously she comes out and ha- does the deep interview with, with, with Tony and lays out some pretty startling um, kind of points from, from her perspective and, and how she kind of has a, has viewed things and how kind of stuff that she's maybe learned or understood about the situation. Like, it's some of it some of it is a bit bizarre some of it is the most is the most kind of basic stuff in football where you know sometimes relationships fracture between a manager and, and staff and players and all the rest of it and in the club game it's not maybe it doesn't happen around the time of a world cup or even internationals although Ireland tends to have a history with maybe a bit of drama at world cups but it just seems a bit bizarre that it's happened at, at this point especially when and i've said this a couple of times because it was but, it, but it's worth remembering we got back to the playoff in scotland and Kate McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan are on the pitch after the result and they're talking about how much they love this style of play, how much they bought into it, what Vera Pell demands of them and the expectations that she puts on them and the demands she puts on them. Like, everybody, everyone was happy then because they, they had this great moment, you know what I mean? Then obviously stuff happens where the World Cup is coming around, Vera Pell's made a couple of decisions on the squad, new personnel come in, you can like that's obviously going to play a factor. There's no way, there's no getting away away from that. People can then have doubts about, well, how does she want to actually go and achieve results? Like people are expecting, again, like you see it what's happened with Ireland, but even with say on the men's side of it, and you see people comparing, but it's like, what's the point? It's to- totally different teams of how, of something's hap- of, of how something's happened and how the FAI have, have broached this. It's totally bizarre that you seem to have to compare what's happened with the men's team with the women's team. You have to take the, the situation in isolation and what's actually happened with it. And it, it seems bizarre that all of a sudden you would qualify for a tournament by doing by doing something for so long and so successfully over a period of time. And even how... If Rita Powell had set it up with the friendlies that she had at the start and what she was the man she was putting on players where he didn't win a game for like the first seven, eight, I think it was seven, eight, nine games because she wanted to increase the competition in the squad and actually show the levels that they had to reach it. And then even with the World Cup, and like I know Paul mentioned it there, and like it was one of the things I went before the World Cup, I went to to obviously after Abby Larkin got called up, went to, to her house, and I was kind of thinking, just I wonder how this is because she's 18 and like she's been called up and like it was a long it was it was a long build up and obviously that was around the time as well that obviously saying back in December when the allegations came out in the in the athletic or sorry well the first was the the NWSL report which I'll be honest like considering she was in, named in that with other people who were accused of far more serious incidents like you're kind of thinking what is what Vera Powell is getting caught up in this when really the worst stuff that's been labelled against her is that she's controlling or maybe overbearing or places extreme demands on players, which so many managers and coaches would do. And then the obviously Vera Pell has contacted the Athletic when ahead of when that report gets uh, when that investigation comes out, and it obviously comes out the week of the France game. And everything's the same, really. That's in it in terms of there's nothing new in there in terms of you've got maybe a, a few more kind of insights into stuff that would have happened at the clubs and stuff, but. And I'll be honest, maybe this is, I don't know if this is me from a perspective of, I don't know, maybe not understanding the gravity of it, but I'm coming out there thinking, like, all oh, she, she's, she's just being extremely demanding here. Like, she's an extremely competent coach who has utter belief in her convi- and, and conviction in what she wants to do, which is exactly what you want from any head coach. 
in terms of, and if she's wrong, she's wrong, but you still want them to believe in it. Like you could be wrong and doing it for the sake of it almost and floating along and taking the paycheck and all the rest of it. But she, this isn't what she was doing. She just seems to be, I wrote her conviction in it. So the reason why I mentioned the thing with Abby Larkin was, is like she spoke so positively about like actually Vera Pell was the one who was getting more out of her and putting more demands on her and re- saying to her and showing her in certain instances of how she can get more out of her game and to believe herself more and to trust herself more. And that even extended to like the day before I met her, she was at the, at the Longitude Festival. So like the players were given, where, when they were in the camp in Dublin, the players were given an awful lot of time off as well and given time, especially the players who actually lived in Dublin as well, to be able to go home. It wasn't the case that they were lock, under lock and key and like you go back to say some uh, other train, um, you hear some of the stories from World Cups where players talk about the boredom and all the rest of it. Like before they went, to, before they got on that plane, they were given an awful lot of trust as well by, by the manager and told, listen, Obviously, like what she said there about the training days and all the rest of it, when, you, when I want you, you have to be all in and you have to, the bands are going to be on you. But when you're not needed, I trust you to go and just, like in Abby Larkin's case, you can go to a music festival with your friends, like the week of the France game. Do you know what I mean? She trusted, like it wasn't as if they were like kept in the lock and key and all the rest of it. And it's it. There's no getting away from it. It's a sad way of of, of how it's ended. It has now ended, and now it's up to the FAI, as has been reported over the last while. They're kind of saying, well, you know, we don't want the manager like Vera Pell anymore, who maybe is a bit of a a kind of outlier to how we want the whole coaching structure within the within the association and the the approach they're gonna gonna have to take. That's now gonna have to bear fruit. That's now gonna have to work. You know, like Vera Pell has shown what was capable of horror methods with this Ireland team at this stage. Now it's a case of right, well you build on it and that's fair enough. And I like it's not as if overnight I think everything's going to change in how Ireland play and the style of play. That's just not going to happen. But if if they were using this World Cup and how they qualify it as this the kind of almost like, you know, the starting point, well this is now how we're going to progress things and go in line with how the game is as a whole. Well then, okay. But then you have to go and deliver success with it, and make sure the methods now that are going to work are actually in place, and actually are there, and the structures are there to actually be able to have the success that's already been achieved. Yeah, and we're going to get Sue Ronan's take on the recent turn of events. So she's uh, obviously former Republic of Ireland manager herself. Uh, but first, here's uh, Vera Pau discussing her misgivings with how she felt the FAI conducted their review. That review uh, was done by the technical director. He's not trained to make reviews and he was part of the process. So the, the assignment on uh, the technical director uh, is something that um, to do a review immediately starting while still in camp after the Nigeria game um, is something that you cannot reflect. The evaluation has not been done and he started with my assistant. So first my assistant, then the communication manager, and I came in as third person. And I felt immediately that my assistant had set the benchmark with things that were absolutely ridiculous. For example, he had said that there was no communication, we did not discuss things. Every morning we had a staff meeting and every single detail of, let's say, my task have been discussed from the setup of the of the training sessions, from uh, the, uh, the uh, the game plan, the strategies, uh, every single detail we discussed with us. Um, whereas, um, in fact, the information that I had to get 
for me, never, never received. I never ever received one document about uh, the scouting, for example. Uh, the scouts put their, their documents in the drive, uh, but there was no overall analysis. And the first moment that I got it was the moment it was presented to the players. And then I was told that I was late in the analysis to the, towards the players. Um, Were you interviewed so for this review? I was at the S third, S third in camp still without um, uh, without distance, without evaluation first of the aims and targets. And All right, Sue. Thanks very much uh, for taking the time. I suppose before we get into Vera Pau, her interview, and some of the things she was talking about in regard to her relationship with the FAI. Um, what was your overall assessment of Ireland's World Cup performance? Uh, were you looking at it as a, you know, from a glass half full perspective or a glass half empty? Um, well, first of all, as we all know, it was a great achievement getting to the World Cup, our first uh, our first major finals uh, in the 50 year history of the, the women's game here. So that was really a great <clears throat> momentous occasion um, for the team and the coach, of course. Um, we were pitted in a difficult enough group. It was called the Group of Death. And I, I, I say I think it was sort of called the Group of Death because all four teams were capable of qualifying. Um, you know, the, we had two really strong teams in the Olympic champions, Canada, and obviously the host Australia, and then the top African team. So it was going to be tough. But I, I always felt, you know, the teams would take points off each other going into the World Cup. Um we know then how it went. Obviously, we missed out on qualifying, but you know it was fine margins. We performed really well against Australia. Um, personally, I thought maybe we were we gave them a little bit too much um, respect uh, in the first half, but we notified all their threats. And then, of course, when you give away a silly goal, a penalty, you're chasing your tail. But we really put it up to them in the last 20, 25 minutes and showed that we, you know, we could. We, we we were we weren't out of place and and we could have got something from the game. Unfortunately, we didn't. Then second game, we were like we came out of the traps flying. You know, I'm not sure anyone expected that. We sort of flipped from that defensive uh, low block to more attacking shape. And I suppose we had to because we couldn't afford to lose that game. And you know, I, I think if we got the second goal in that first half when our, our dominance really deserved it, we would have went on to win it. But unfortunately, then as we know, things went a bit pear shaped for us in the second half and. Then we were out really, and we were playing um, a very good uh, African team, Nigeria, who I think they only needed a draw to go through in the end, and they sort of played for that draw, um, and it was difficult enough to break them down. So overall, how did we perform? We we certainly didn't look out of place. We certainly didn't let ourselves down. Um, personally, you know, I felt we it, it was probably one that got away. Um, you know, we could potentially have have uh, gotten through that group as well. Um, I keep saying we didn't have those teams that you just are never going to beat in that group, you know, like the, you know, mind you, some of them now have su subsequently been beaten, obviously, but, you know, your England, your Spains, your, at the time we were thinking USA, Germany, Japan, um, obviously Germany and, and USA didn't work out in the end, Japan, probably not unlucky not to go further. Um, so those teams weren't in the group, but look, we, we did very well. We were respectable. And I think it showed that we belong at that stage. So hopefully we continue to qualify for major finals. Yeah. Where, what was your view on the debate around the style of play and, you know, the, the pragmatism that Vera Pau had brought to the team, which obviously had played a part in helping them to qualify. Um, do you think maybe there was room for, for more, um, you know, a more progressive style of play, or do you feel that was a little bit unrealistic given the challenges in the group and also the, I suppose, the attributes of the players that uh, were in the squad? 
Yeah, I think the tactics um, were the right tactics to get us qualification. Um, you know, Vera came in and made us very difficult, a very difficult team to beat. Um, she set us up in a shape that that uh, teams found it hard to break down. We were organized, we were compact. Um, and we did show, you know, flair in, in, in a number of matches, you know, to, to win the games. I, I always think about the two games against Sweden. I thought we were excellent in those games. The two games against USA, we were excellent. Um, probably, you know, less shackles on us as such against USA because they weren't competitive games and we could maybe show show ourselves in an attacking sense a little bit more. Um but yeah, I, I think it was right probably to go in initially to be cautious in the first game, but and and ease your way in. You know, I, I don't think we could go in and and be all out attack. Um, uh, you know, we had to be respect the opposition to a certain extent. But I think once we got a bit of a foothold in that game, we potentially could have you know maybe attacked a little bit more. I've said it. Um, are being on on the offensive a little bit more at times, and, and as I say, not all the time, but maybe at times in the game, just you know, loosen the shackles a little bit, maybe get a bit more advanced and show what we're about going forward because we have some world class players. And again, I've said before, for me, I I would prefer to see Katie McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan particularly, and and Megan Connolly, but particularly the former two playing in more advanced roles because they make the team tick, and we saw what happened when they did. Uh, when they were in more advanced roles and you know we we, we created some great great uh, opportunities um we really pulled up to the canadians as i said we pulled up to the australians in the last 20 25 minutes um so could we have uh, have attacked a little bit more or could we have ha- had a, a more attacking shape i think at times you know a mix with that defensive stability where we were hard to break down but look, at the end of the day, the 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 coach makes a decision, and and she knows more about, I guess, at what stage players are at in terms of fitness and and in terms of form, and and then I suppose what she feels is going to be best to win the games. Yeah, and then obviously last Tuesday the FAI confirmed they're not offering Vera Power new contract, start of a new era. Um, what was your take on that decision? Obviously, results the results are one aspect of it. There's other um other criteria as well. I'm sure that they would have been um looking at. But would you have um do you feel Vera Power deserved another um another contract and another spell in charge? Well, if you're going purely on the pitch, um, you could say she did, you know, um, and I said that before the the World Cup, um, she got us to the first major tournament and we've seen coaches in the past um, get new contracts on foot of qualifying for major tournaments and before they go. Um, and we've seen in other sports as well, it happens in rugby all the time. It's happened previously with um, some of the men's managers, uh, Trapatoni, I think, to name one anyway, and potentially Martin O'Neill also. Um, so if you're looking at it from that point of view, you could say, yes, she did deserve a new contract. Um, were they waiting to see how the results went in the World Cup before making that decision? Potentially, and we weren't shamed there either. Um, you know, I think I suppose we all feel maybe we we, we could on another day we could potentially got out of that group, but we we didn't let ourselves down either. So I don't think the results would have determined somebody not getting a new contract. Um, I I think I think it was had become evident before the World Cup that relate the relationship had soured. Um, certainly maybe between Vera and the players and between Vera and the FAI as well for a number of reasons and I think that's probably more more at play here than the, than the results than the on-pitch stuff. 
Yeah, because of course the timing was an issue. Now there was, you know, talk of potential a potential new contract uh, as early as late last year, and then it sort of rumbled on before the World Cup into it as well. And at the same time, there's that uh, report from the Athletic about her time in the NWSL, and all of this, uh, I'm sure, played a part in how things uh, how things evolved. So, how do you feel the FAI maybe should have handled that period? Because I guess it wasn't uh, it wasn't particularly conducive to you know uh, a good World Cup or at least making Vera Pau's job easier, and also for the for the players as well. Yeah, I think um, obviously we know the FBI have conducted a review now and based off those findings, they've effectively decided not to renew the contract. And that's what they're saying. Um, And as I said, I think, you know, the general public here could read between the lines that things seem to have soured for whatever reason um, or for a number of reasons. but I think the FBI, there is a vacuum now of, you know, there's a lack of information coming. And, and I think, unfortunately, there's been a backlash against the players, which I think is unfair. Um, players, of course, will have been asked for their opinion in, in the review, as they should be. Um, and, you know, what they what they said or whatever they said, you know, they wouldn't have said it lightly. Um, so I, I think, uh, yeah, I think the FAI need to come out now and, you know, Make you know exactly explain exactly why they haven't uh, given Vera the new contract. Um, because as I say, players are are being slaughtered on social media. Uh, Vera's come out now with her statement with various um points that she's made in that, or accusations for want of a better word about different things that happened or or you know in Australia and before. So I think really the FBI needs to clarify now um why they didn't give her a new contract. And look, it is their right and every manager you know that the the time a manager's in situ it does evolve and it comes to a, a natural end at some point whether you agree with it or not when you're the coach um but i think just for clarity you now the fai need to come out and say exactly what the reasons are why they haven't renewed the contract yeah because Powell has spoken about feeling undermined in terms of her authority before and during the tournament as you said and um one of the things she was saying the FAI were speaking to staff members and players regarding their roles in the team in the build up to the tournament and then um during it uh, as well and from the parts of the interview you now she did the interview with uh, Tony O'Donoghue our soccer correspondent on Friday what did you make of some of the examples um she was discussing in that yeah there was some interesting stuff in it wasn't there um I mean, she spoke about she she she's quite clear on the fact that she feels um, the review wasn't conducted correctly. Um, that it started, I think she said it started immediately after the Nigerian game, the Nigeria game, and there wasn't a time given for reflection. Um, she also said that it started with her assistant and the communications manager, and and not with her. Um, and if she's responsible for the mandate given to the team by the FAI, that it should have started with her. Um, she also feels Mark Callum isn't isn't qualified enough to conduct the the the, the review. So there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, you know, she mentions that FAI executives interfered in in um, non-footballing executives. I think was the word interfered in footballing issues and. You know, I don't know exactly what she means by that, but I mean, you know, it's not unreasonable to have FAI senior staff around the camp. Of course, there are certain times when they shouldn't be um, involved with the team and the coach. You know, there's certain times that it'd be sacrosanct, you know, the dressing room, probably the training pitch and potentially mealtime as well, which is something that Vera mentioned, you know, um, that's probably the time that you you, you do build a bit of a bond with your players or, or things can be said or whatever. But there would be times when they would be around. And I, I don't see anything wrong with that. 
Um, I also don't see anything wrong with with uh, FAI executives speaking to players or speaking to different people, you know, around the camp. And they could be talking about things as simple as the facilities or um, communication responsibilities or or the kit or, you know, something as simple as that or travel, whatever logistics. And, and that's all reasonable because there are staff, FAI staff there that you know that's their responsibility they're the experts in those areas and the the, the I, I don't see any issues with that um however if they were speaking to players about on pitch stuff as vera seems to allude to um that's that's absolutely incorrect and that shouldn't be the case but again as i say vera has said what she said now and we need the fai to come out and either clarify or deny or whatever so we know exactly you know what's what has happened yeah, what do you make of the sort of relative silence of the players as well? I mean, obviously, um, Vera Powers come out and said she actually has a pretty good relationship with most of you know, most of the players have got in contact in the wake of um, the decision not to have her contract renewed and also that she had a, an hour long conversation with Katie McCabe and that they're totally fine and that their relationship is uh, is good now. But what do you make of the relative silence? Because a lot of people have put a bit of focus on that. But again, you know, others have argued that, you know, the players have returned to their clubs. They're not there as a collective. So there isn't going to be a, you know, a united message anyway, because they're not all in one place. Yeah, I suppose it's probably a little bit maybe strange that you haven't had players come out a little bit on social media. I suppose all the, everyone, all young people are on social media these days, but look, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't harp on that either. I wouldn't blame them. Um, you know, I, from what Vera says all along in the, you know, all right through the, the press conferences in the world cup, I think she was asked about why they didn't comment on or support her during the press conferences. And she seemed to allude to the fact that they'd been briefed, you know, what to say, what not to say. Um, so potentially if that's the case, you know, they're, they're sort of taking that one step further. They're just leaving, leaving it alone and, and letting whatever has to come out in the public come out from the FAI and, and not get involved in that respect. Um, and the fact that she said very many of them, I think she said most of them had contacted her directly, which was good to see. And I'm sure anyone that hasn't in time will, um, because she would have done a lot for, for those players. Um, but I suppose, you know, it is a, a world of social media these days and, and the general public, I guess, is going to look at that and say, it is very strange that they haven't come out Um and perhaps you could say, you know, maybe it is, but I, 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 as I said, I wouldn't blame them. I, you know, I don't think it's their role. They're not the mouthpiece, I, I, I guess, for the FAI. They're players. They concentrate in the next game. And I always say players are selfish. And I was one myself, and I'm sure I was selfish too. You know, you're concentrating on your next game. You want to know if you're playing. And they could be looking at, like a lot of those are young players too. They could be thinking to themselves, you know, there's a new manager going to be coming in now. I don't want to be seen as someone is out on social media. I, I don't know, but yeah, it's. Probably a little strange, but I, I wouldn't attach any blame to, to, to the players uh, in this respect at all. Yeah, and Eileen Gleeson, for the moment anyway, is an interim charge and obviously big task is the uh, the Nations League opener, which is against Northern Ireland later this month and a historic game at the Aviva Stadium. First time that they're going to be playing there. But um, all of this uh, that has emerged in recent times and all of the discussion, I guess it it's an unenviable task for Riding Gleeson the build up to that because it's a lot of the talk is going to be dominated by what's happened before. Yeah, and I think this is this was the problem as well. I think in the lead up to the World Cup, and and you could see Katie McKay's frustration at that la that was at the last press conference um, just before the French game. Probably the main 
press conference before they departed for Australia. Most of the pre- most of the uh, questioning centered around the article in the Athletic, and it wasn't around the game. And likewise, in Australia, most of the questioning to the players was centering around Vera's contract and, you know, would she be staying, would she be going? And players want to play, they want to talk about the game, you know, they want to be asked about the game. And they probably got very frustrated. There was all that exterior noise. And unfortunately, it's going to be the same again. And and the fact that the FAI have come out and and not clarified things and cleared things up is just going to drag it on a little bit more. Um, And as we get closer to that game, of course, you know, the focus of all those press conferences now is going to be why they didn't keep Vera, why, you know, what's the rationale behind it. And that's just such a shame because, you know, this team has really, you know, not that it's put football on the map here, because, you know, there has been great development in the last number of years, but it, it certainly has made it more visible. It's made it more attractive to sponsors. It's made it more attractive to media outlets, which is fantastic because once it's out there, once it can be seen, you've got young kids then that can dream. Um, and it's made it more visible to young kids who are the players of the future. And that's what we should be talking about. We should be talking about the game. We should be talking about, you know, our first, this historic moment of the Aviva Stadium, this match against Northern Ireland, which... I would hope we would win um, the Nations League, you know, this new competition. How can we get out of this? How can we potentially get a playoff for Euros 2025? And that needs to be now the focus. And I think if the FEI just come out and clarify things, that might put that to bed for, for a bit. But as long as they don't, there's always going to be that those questions that will be asked. That's just the nature of journalism. Yeah, I think the expectation is they're going to, and the FAI CEO, Jonathan Hill, will probably make a comment on it um, after the upcoming men's internationals. I think that's the, that's, apparently the plan anyway it's to let Stephen Kenny and his squad sort of get over the the France and Netherlands games and then yeah. uh, to discuss that but we, we'll we'll have to wait and see when that happens but in terms of the Nations League then Northern Ireland Hungary Albania and this idea that the style might evolve now Eileen Gleeson is in interim charge we'll we'll see um we'll see what happens in terms of a permanent manager but will it be hard to judge an evolution in the Nations League, given the calibre of opposition, or will it be more of a wait and see till the uh, the qualifying campaign when there will be some of the elite teams involved there? I think so. Um, I think the calibre of opposition, we are in Group B um, of the, the Europa League. So obviously by virtue of that, we're going to be playing weaker teams. I think we're actually, we just missed the cut for Group A. So we're probably the one of the top seeds, if not the top seed in Group uh, B, so we would be expected to beat these teams um, who are ranked a lot lower than us. And I know we could say Nigeria were, like, were, were ranked much lower than us, which they were. But I think the ranking system is in Africa. The African teams don't seem to play as many games, as many friendly. So therefore, maybe they're not getting the 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 um, ranking points, you know, to, to bring them up the rankings as such. Um, but look, Albania are, are a weak team. Hungary... Are, are weak enough and, and Northern Ireland no disrespect to Northern Ireland they did fantastic qualifying for uh, the Euros there last year the 2022 Euros they have a new coach in as well they might have a new style of play um, but our we have a better team than all those three teams and that's not you know that's not blowing our horn as such we we just have we have a couple of world-class players and we've got some great young talent up and coming and Guiding will play a different style of play 
obviously by virtue of the opposition, but I think she her, her style of play is a bit different to Vera's anyway. Um, so it would be difficult to judge, uh, but it also would be great to, you know, get back on the horse and, and come out of that with 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 uh, having coming undefeated because you're giving the confidence again to the group going in then to the qualifying uh, campaign for the, the European Championships. Yeah, I suppose finally the criteria for the next manager, what do you expect it to be? Because there is a sense that the FAI wants things to be aligned in terms of coaching at the different age grades and whether that's in the men's or the women's uh, um, grade or the women's uh, games. And uh, there was a sense maybe that from what Pau sort of implied in, in her interview with Tony, that maybe there was a sense that they viewed her as being slightly outside of that uh, kind of line in terms of uh, coaching philosophy. Yeah, um, like even in my day when I was coaching the team, there was a philosophy. We all the teams play the same way. You played four three three, and the underage teams play the same. There was that link with with the underage teams because players are moving up and down, and particularly with the younger players, especially then. You know, five six years ago, they weren't being developed at the clubs. You know, we didn't have um, underage national leagues, so so players were playing at quite a low level in regional leagues. So, you know, you needed to be sort of new developing. The, the national teams were sort of developing those players. So you wanted them all playing the same way. When they stepped up to the national team, it was quite smooth, a uh, smooth transition. And that's the way it is on the men's side. And that's the way it was on the women's side, whether that changed when Vera came in, it seemed to a little bit. Um, you know, I, 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 I think a new coach coming in will definitely have to align that. Um, I would also... First of all, it's a great opportunity. I think it's going to be a really, it's an attractive job. Um, I think you're going to have many people who will be interest, interested in that job, um, potentially from here and also from abroad. Um, I know some people already, you know, text me uh, about it, but uh, I, I'm sure there definitely will be interest. For me, I, I would like to see the person, you know, if they're not based here, certainly maybe based in England, that they can go regularly to watch our, our players playing every week. I think a lot of most of our players are playing in England, um, but they should have a big presence here also. Um, they're not responsible for developing the game here, but, they, you know, they should be seen around and, uh, you know, their their profile should should help with that as such. Um, but yeah, I think it, it is an attractive position and I think you'll get a lot of interest from abroad uh, for that role. Yeah, so there's a couple of things to wait for, obviously, who the next manager is going to be. But also, as you've said, uh, the FAI will be expected to come out and uh, speak uh, in the next week or two before, especially before this uh, the, this game against Northern Ireland. Uh, but Sue, thanks uh, very much for your time today. No problem at all, Raph. All right, so that is former Republic of Ireland manager Sue Ronan uh, speaking uh, speaking to us uh, just about the uh, the situation with Vera Pau and what comes next for the Republic uh, of Ireland women's national team. But uh, turning to other matters, the women's Premier Division uh, over the weekend on Saturday, uh, Wexford beat Sligo 4-1 away. Uh, Shamrock Rovers were 4-0 winners at Cork City. Uh, P-Mount won 3-0 at DLR Waves. And then Bowes and Galway drew nil all. And Shelburne beat Athlone 2-1. So top of the table at the moment, P-Mount on 40. Shelburne on 34. Shamrock Rovers on 31. Bowes on 27. And Galway 26. And Wexford with that victory up to 23 for the moment. And also the cup draw has also been made for the Sports Direct Women's FAI Cup quarterfinals. Shelburne going to be taking on DLR Waves. Bohemians against like Rovers. At Lone Town are going to take on P-Mount United and then Shamrock Rovers are going to be at Cork City. And uh, over on Friday, the SSC or Tristy Men's Premier Division 
some very intriguing results. Cork City beating Sligo Rovers 3-0 with Rory Keating scoring what was a very emotional hat-trick for him. And then Drada United beating UCD 3-0. Derry City 3-1 winners at Dundalk with Will Patching scoring a couple of goals in that, including one from the spot. And then in the Dublin Derby, Shamrock Rovers winning 3-0 over Bohemians. And then a result that of course, has a bearing on uh, what's happening in terms of a potential title race. Shelburne uh, denting St. Pat's hopes of the 2-1 win over the 10 men with Jay McGrath sent off uh, at that stage. But first on the Dublin Derby and uh, Paul, I mean, results have been picking up for Shamrock Rovers of late, especially in the last, say, two, three weeks. And would it be fair to say this victory over Bohemians, this would be their best display in recent times? Oh, by an absolute mile, Ralph. I think, you know, like, like you've mentioned there, the results have been good this year. The results and performances probably haven't gone hand in hand at, at different times. And yes, they've been good in spells during games, but I thought this was the, I wouldn't say the first time, but the most obvious time that they've put kind of 90 minutes together where they looked really strong. Um, I thought in general play, they were very strong. The the box that they had midfield between Poom, O'Neill, uh, Richie Taylor and Graham Burke worked very well and I thought Graham Burke was the best player on the pitch to be honest with you I thought his, his creativity is is just ability to control possession and create chances was was very very strong and uh, yeah they, they played very well Um, you know no surprise to see Roman Finn kind of popping up at one the fullbacks are so important to them when they play that system and there was just a there was a control about their game that maybe has been lacking at times this season and you could see kind of the confidence within the team and it, it does go to show you that when they do put it together and when they do hit those levels they they are certainly quite a bit better than than other teams in the league and uh, I would have said I think on the sh- on the podcast earlier on the year that I would expect them to win by 10 plus points that was probably looking a little out of touch a couple of weeks ago, but I think they're on course now to kind of win this at a canter. And when you have the likes of Neil Farouja coming off the bench and whipping one into the top bins, uh, Jack Byrne not yet available. Dylan Watts didn't didn't start the game the other night. Like they've just so many options and uh, defensively as well. I think they looked solid. I thought Pico Lopez and, and Cleary and Grace looked very strong. Alan Manis obviously back in goals. And it felt more of what we saw from Shamrock Rovers last year. And uh, Bowes really didn't kind of lay a glove on them. And, and it's those fullback areas where you kind of expect Rovers to to maybe be a little exposed. And you're kind of hoping from a Bowes point of view that Danny Grant or Dylan Conley gets down in behind that back five and wide areas. Dylan Conley did it once in the first half where he crossed into Afalabi. But they yeah. just weren't able, able to get anything going. Um, I know a lot of people will talk about the penalty and it was it was a, it was an absolute clear as day penalty. I I couldn't believe that it was missed um on James Clark and that should have been given. But if you take that incident alone out, you know, Shamrock Rovers were by far the better team and it puts them in a superb position now heading into that Derry game when they play them, I think in two weeks' time. Yeah, and Bowles remain very much in the race for Europe despite um, that result. I mean, obviously they'll be they'll be gutted, but uh, currently fourth place, three points behind Derry City, and also three points behind Pats. Now Derry do have a game in hand, and uh, no European distractions now, David. And I mean, there were three one winners at Dundalk, and when you look at the momentum that they have, um, also I suppose they took a bit of that from Europe as well. But probably best place to challenge Rovers, especially given what happened uh, to Pats in their game. Yeah, no, look, it, it does feel that way now, but it, this has been a strange season, you know, well, I know even Paul there speaking and the guy was thinking the same just before the, the mid-season break when Rovers comfortably beat Bowes and I think it was about, they maybe put three or four wins together at that point and obviously that's going back a few months now. 
and they weren't able to kick on, you know. And like speaking to Stephen Bradley after, and I know this is going back on Rovers, but we'll obviously just method to me madness here, not just turning this into kind of a hoop scene section. Uh, I, I, I trust you, I trust you. The podcast, but at, like if you go off what Rovers have done in the last few years, you would expect them now to kick on, but this season has just been a bit different. They've not been able to do that, like they. You go back to the Shells game and you can see that so late they got that winner against obviously Dundalk, Pico Lopez got it and Stephen Bradley felt as if he felt as if, you know what, the team now are in a really good place. And they've kind of been at that point a couple of times and not been able to not been able to do it. And I kind of feel as if that could still happen this season. I just don't I don't see Rovers at the moment, even though he looked really I was there the match recovered it. I just don't see Rovers going on and doing at the moment. And that's purely because of just how so far this season has gone. And because that, like, Dirty game, Dirty obviously have UCD on Wednesday, don't they? Like, obviously you'd expect them to go there and win and, and win comfortably. Then there's going to be that break. And then you've got that game up in the Brandywell. And it's going to be, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to, like, it could set the tone for the rest. So I think that's the game where if Rovers can can get away with there without, uh, without getting beaten, but then, then I would say, well, do you know what? They they have all the experience, they have the know-how, and they've also dealt a bit of a blow to Derry as well. That's the game I think they still have to get through. I think that's still the challenge at the moment, that they get through that. Well, then I would expect Rovers to go and go on and, and win the league. But I just I just have that sense in me, and I could be totally wrong. And listening to Stephen Bradley, he was talking about the psychologist, that there were Rovers players speak to once a week, and there's a lot of the positive, positive stuff that has come out of there. And... Obviously, he's a manager. He's gonna to want to be maintaining a, a like high level of positivity at this stage of the season, and he's right, especially the manner of the of the win. But there's still so many fine margins, like Paul mentioned it there. That chance that Bowles had just be- just before the halftime, when eventually Lee Gray scored from that set piece, but Afaladi at the near post, like he gets there ahead of uh, he gets there ahead of um, Dan Cleary, and just doesn't get a connection. He's at the front post, he doesn't get the connection, and. Just the Afalabi a couple of weeks ago was scoring that scoring that goal, and it was the one moment, but they're the moments you need in the game, especially when you're away to home. Such a good time where balls exposed. Sean Cavanagh down that side was a great little pass over the top for for Dylan Conley got in, but then they, they didn't take that chance, and then to, to give away that goal from the set piece, which was a fantastic header by by Lee Grace, and then yeah, I'll be honest, I thought they could have easily had three penalties in the game. You know, like this, maybe the second one of the first half, he's kind of. He kind of falls inside the box and it could have been given as a free kick. But even just before Ferruja, just as he actually when Ferruja came on, Afalabi was getting treatment. And it looked to me as if he got like even in real time, he gets an elbow on the side of the head from Lee Grace when the ball's coming into the box. And like you're looking at that and you're seeing it, and my instinct straight away was that's a penalty. Do you know what I mean? It's not a centre back just nudging you for it, not the way you would normally, where you might get a little tap on the balls in the air. Like it wasn't just knocking them out of a stride. It was it looked to me as if it was a penalty, but um, that's the game now. I sorry, I would, I would say is I think if Rovers can get away from from the Brandywell in a couple of weeks' time. It's a shame actually. It's not this week as well because just with the momentum, maybe both sides has they go hundred miles an hour. You wonder will a bit of the oh, I don't know a bit of the intensity be going out of it, especially with what what could be at stake because it's a game. I think they already have to win that, and that maybe that will play into Rovers' hands. They've already you go back to earlier in the season. They scored one of the goals of the season there earlier in the season. It wasn't Richie Tell scored that. Fantastic goal, and it was a move that was created like back to front. And again, Paul mentioned that box midfield utilized it to absolutely unbelievable effect because Jack Gorn obviously played then. He, he, Stephen Bradley mentioned it, he's probably going to be back by the time that Dirty game comes around as well. So I think that's the game that's going to be the one that could decide it because if Dirty can, I think Dirty will, if they could get back to one point, win that if by then, and then it's anybody's, it really is. And I, 
ideal thing now is just going to be Derry um, Rovers in a, in a race for it and the rest are playing for Europe and maybe trying to do something in the cup. Yeah, and Derry kept themselves in it, obviously, by making the most of Dundalk's uh, defensive errors in, in their game. Obviously, ended up being 3-1, but Dundalk as well did test Marr at the other end. Uh, he had to make a couple of couple of good saves in the game um, but the end result of the, the weekend of course the Shells actually go above Dundalk now and are in the mix for, for Europe at Pats' expense uh, well Pats still ahead of them of course uh, Pats on 50 points and Shells back in fifth on uh, on 46 but uh, that game um, Paul I mean it hinged on obviously a red card for Jay McGrath at a point that Pats were winning 1-0 and then um, uh, Euclid, or Euclides then with the uh, or sorry Euclides Cabral then with the, the equaliser for Shells and then Paddy Barrett with a brilliant header to, to win it for Shells Never mind the game what about Damien Duff at the end of it <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant but it, it's it was a it was an interesting fixture I mean for me, Jack Moylan has, has been Shell's standout player of the season. And, uh, you know, he, he tied McGrath once or twice even before the, the second yellow, whereby he's just chopped him in the box. And he's such a difficult player to play against, Raph. He, he's got kind of a a, a unique talent of, of being able to dribble with the ball very, very well. And, and you know, he's he's got his back to go when he's got McGrath, but he's just rolled him. And uh, he's put him in a real sticky position where McGrath had to had to take him down, and Shells kicked on from there. But I, you know, Shells, irrespective of who they're playing, are always within games. They never seem to get steamrolled, or never seems to concede too many goals. And um, they've got players who can hurt you, and the likes of Moylan. But yeah, the the header from Paddy Barrett was was superb. I mean, he, he must be twelve yards out when he's made contact with the ball. And, Maybe you could ask a bit more of Breslin on the post to to maybe get up and clear it, but it was one that kind of landed right in the top corner and it leaves them in an, in an incredible position. I mean, you know, you talk about the progression and development of football clubs and you, you kind of look to put building blocks in place and progress year on year. And you can absolutely say that about Shells. I think, you know, where they are in the league table is a testament to that, but I think the performances as well, they, they have been a difficult side to play against, but they're certainly showing a lot more on the ball in, in the last couple of months. And, you know, you, you look at Bowes there and there's only a point between them. Bowes haven't won away from home Raph, since April. And that would be a big worry for me if I was a Bowes fan that, yes, they're good at Daily Mount Park, but anytime they go away, they seem to be struggling to, to win games and pick up points. And as as long as Shells can kind of stay on on kind of uh, their co-threads, they, they could well catch them. Um, they've, they've shown that they're very difficult to play against, very difficult to beat. And there's a belief within that squad that they could, they can go one better last year. And if one of the teams is to win the cup and opens up European football for that fourth spot, I would not be surprised if if Shells were to leapfrog Bowes. Bowes obviously in control at the moment, but if they were to slip up, Shells are right behind them. Yeah, it's a similar story at the other end of the table with a huge win for Cork City, a hat-trick for Rory Keaton, as I said, quite an emotional one for him given um, what himself and his uh, family have had to go through in, in recent times. Um, so 3-0 win, which leaves Sligo also uh, having worries growing week by week. That That's four league defeats in a row for, for Sligo without a goal as well. If you ignore the, the FAI Cup, um, where they beat Treaty United there recently and uh, no league win since mid-July when they had beaten Cork 3-0 in the corresponding fixture. And Paul, I mean... Sligo had probably the better of the game when you look at the the chances up until the sloppy penalty that's given away um by the goalkeeper. Yeah, I feel for Connor Walsh like he's is a young man he's probably got his opportunity a little sooner than he was expected at at Sligo and uh, it was a really heavy touch I'm sure when he looks back on it now it's it's 
clear as day that he should have just taken a swing of it and just put it into row Z and, and kind of set up again from there. But he's taken a heavy touch and then he's kind of compounded things by by giving away the penalty. But I think by and large, when, when you look at Sligo, the real worry for me, Raf, is just the nature of the goals they're giving away. Like if you look at Keating's, I think it's second from a throw-in. Yeah. I think it's maybe John Mahon that he, he just a little drop of the shoulder a throw and he's in one-on-one against Connor Walsh. So um, that's a real worry. I, I thought early on in the season some of the performances were quite strong, but now it looks like they're they're just a really easy team to play against, easy team to play against and easy team to score against. Um, and when they lost uh, Max Mata, a lot of those goals will have dried up. You start to worry for them at both ends um, and they're losing a hell of a lot of games. So it's a situation there where Sligo desperately need to get back to basics very quickly and they need to share up because at the moment they're leaking goals and they're losing games of football in Cork particularly with Keating back and Keating scoring goals are, are kind of gives themselves more chances of picking up points in games and only three points behind you're kind of looking at a situation where if you're picking one team to avoid that that playoff you're probably picking Cork at this moment in time and that's not a situation that many people would have foreseen you know maybe four or six weeks ago where it looked like there was a good bit of daylight between the two teams. Sligo are in free fall. Like there's, there's no way of getting away from that. They are in free fall, and something needs to change quickly because that habit of losing games is a terrible one to be in. And um, there's no evidence there. Purely when you look at the goals that they can see, like Cork have, have done well in different games. Cork aren't one of the top teams in, in this division, and you look at the goals that they conceded the other day, and that would ring alarm bells in my ears if I was a Sligo fan and you know Sligo when I was playing Sligo and Derry were the two teams that you used to envy or you used to hate playing against because it was such a difficult place to go and such a difficult team to play against and there's there's no sign of that within that squad and I, I'd be very worried for them Yeah Andrade United is was finally in the Premier Division David I mean they're eight points clear of Cork probably another couple of wins and they should be uh, def- they'll definitely have themselves over the line but uh, I think the uh, apart from the fact that they're you know they put themselves in a great position to to survive um, with a bit to spare um, Kyle Robinson's uh, goal his second of the day I mean arguably goal of the season yeah, well, I think th- I'm not sure who was on comment on commentary, but it was called straight away, wasn't it? Like it was one of those where again coming back and you, you always there was a couple of messages thrown into into WhatsApp and it was like just what a goal, what a goal, what a goal, and it was only when I got home that you had a look to uh to watch it and uh, it's just it's just fantastic and like on a, on a couple of points and kind of following on from what Paul was saying about 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 Sligo and it's one of them where like. You know, they draw it. It's almost like draw it MA for this kind of situation. Like they got themselves clear. They've had a good start to the season. Like even when they had Freddie Draper and he was still there, like they had that him like leading the line. But they've just shown themselves to be a bit, a bit cuter and a bit smarter about how how to go about it. And don't get me wrong, of course, they like, help start their home ground as well. Is a place where where teams, you know, you put it in the cliche, you know, tough place to go, not a nice place to go. Whereas with Sligo, like after the break, it was just double checking there, wanted to see, like they have UCD at home, like they have to win that game for Sligo Rovers because after that, they've got Dirty, they've got Bowes, they've got Pats, they're not getting a point out of those games. I don't, I don't think, like, um, especially because Bowes are at, Bowes are at home. And I'll be honest, in, until Paul flagged there, I actually wasn't even aware of the extent of Bowes' troubles on the on the uh, on the road as well. So the fact that Bowes are going to be at home, you can't see can't see Sligo getting that in there, and then. Just with Drahada, yeah, like they're just like them and UC, them and UCD are the outliers a little bit because like 
draw the really are the, the one true kind of part-time team left in the league. Do you know, like I did a piece like this the start of the season about where the league is going. The likes of a draw that are going to be slowly extinguished from the, from the league in terms of how they want it. It's going to be obviously a full-time professional league. The nature of it with the underage systems coming up, it's going to be younger players and all and all the rest. And I was expecting maybe draw it to, to have a bit of a struggle, but obviously some of the deals they've got, they got over it and got in were, were massive for them. Um, they they obviously lost and um, the, the name has just totally gone out of my head. The the fullback was obviously gone to 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 Norwich as well. But like they just they just seem to have been able to deal with some of these bumps in the road a bit quicker and a bit easier. And just obviously coming from the from the management too as well. But just how they've been set up and like Darren Markey as well. Like he, he, one of those players who obviously came through at Pats and done really well, but then. But he's really taken on that responsibility as well. And I was looking at one of the one of the stats with actually with Shane Keegan, uh, obviously the Cole Ramblers manager. But I think Darren Markey is like fourth in the stats for actually carrying the ball in terms of the distance he's carried it and just like and stuff like that. I know it could be sometimes like that, but that just gives you an insight as well into just little things where there's moments where you have those players who can just relieve that little bit of pressure and take a bit of I don't know, just take a bit of kind of. I don't know, pressure off and just ease, ease a little bit of, I don't know, the anxiety that can be around the crowd when you have a player like him who you forget he's been around now a little bit. You don't, you don't kind of view him as that kind of experienced or just a kind of a head who you'd look to before he was that player who might, oh, can you unlock a defence with a pass? Can he do something? But he's actually had that leadership role, I think, at Drada and taking it on really well. And I think that's something they're being really harsh about at Sligo that just hasn't been there. Just that little bit of know-how and just that bit of people taking proper responsibility for, for what's being needed on, on the pitch. Yeah, and in the first division at Lone Town were 2-1 winners at Waterford. Wexford and Finn Harp shared the points, one all, and then Cove Ramblers beat Treaty United 1-0, and Bray Wanderers were 3-1 winners at Kerry, and then Saturday night, Longford Town beat Galway United 1-0, but really doesn't really do much to the table. Galway still top 73 points, Waterford 58, and then Cove at Lone and Wexford on 45, 43, 39, and Longford Town occupying the sixth place position there on 37. But uh, before we go, the Champions League draw for the group stage was made uh, last week. And um, looking through it, I mean, we're going to have live coverage on Tuesday nights on RT2 and the RT player, so people will be able to watch it there. But uh, Newcastle's draw, probably, Paul, is the one that uh, on paper looks pretty tough. I mean, they're in they're in with PSG, they're in with Borussia Dortmund, AC Milan. But maybe on paper it's not as... Uh, or when you, when you go beyond paper, it doesn't look as bad actually when you when you look at it or they should be able to compete anyway yeah it, uh, they'll absolutely complete or compete but yeah it's it's the one group that's kind of wide open with regards to the teams that will go through you would expect the Paris Saint-Germain would, would likely top the group with, with kind of the players that they have at their disposal likely with Enrique as a manager as well it's going to be difficult for, for Newcastle Raph like you look at those teams and they're very tried and tested within European football the bundles of experience of managing kind of domestic league and then kind of the midweek European games. And I'm not sure that's something that you would you would see a huge amount of within that Newcastle team. And that's probably the worry that I would have for Newcastle is that, you know, there's not a huge amount of experience or know-how of, of managing these European ties. And they could find it difficult, I think, to get out of that group, um, particularly just with, with the teams that they're going to have to go up against. But it, it'll be an interesting one. Like they haven't started the Premier League very well. They've had very difficult games to, to play. So you can maybe give them a bit of a pass there, but they certainly don't seem to be hitting the levels that they they were showing last year. I thought they overachieved within the Premier League and I thought this year it was going to be difficult to 
to repeat that again. But that Champions League group is is going to be difficult. And it'll also be interesting to see how they actually balance that with the results they get in the Premier League when they have to play midweek against some of these teams, what sort of results they they get in, in the Premier League and whether or not that impacts them there. But if if I was kind of giving you a bit of a a guess, I, I don't think they'll get out of that group. I, I think it's it's going to be too stern a task to get out of it. But there's certainly certainly other groups as well. I know Davey be interested with Manchester United. I think Manchester United could struggle to get out of that group as well. Yeah, because looking at it, City, they, they've Leipzig, they have uh, Red Star Belgrade and Young Boys, you'd be fairly confident that they'll walk that, if not uh, winning every game. Obviously, Leipzig are the, the toughest team in that group. And then you look at Arsenal, they've got Sevilla, who seem to be, um, if it, this isn't the Europa League, so they're and also they're bottom of La Liga at the moment as well. So they're, they're not as a big a challenge. They have PSV as well, who did well to uh, trash Rangers in the playoff, and then Lons as well from France. But David, I mean, looking at Man United's group, obviously Bayern Munich now with Harry Kane leading the line, and then Copenhagen, who were pretty strong at home in the group stages last year, and then Galatasaray, who... I saw a little bit of in the in the playoff because they were on they were live on RT two last Tuesday. Um, this is a it's a tricky enough group for United, and we did see them against Arsenal yesterday, where you know they they made a game of it until the the closing stages when um a certain Declan Rice uh with a deflected goal in fairness uh opened opened things up, and then Gabriel Jesus with the the clincher. Yeah, so just on on the the group like. Let's be honest, like Bayern Munich will, will top the group. That's just what they do, isn't it? They don't, they just don't mess about. They get through the group stages. They just go through and pummel teams. And I know, like, there's a bit of a, there is seen to be a little bit of a case of under uh, with Tuchel in terms of even how they won the league, like the nature of it and stuff. And maybe if you're looking at, if you're trying to be really overly optimistic, maybe they might not have that same. I don't know, or of invincibility because of some of the maybe that sense of things that are changing a little bit under under Tuchel, but. Like they've got the pedigree, you know, down at the moment in terms of over the last couple of years and the players look at their squad and obviously Harry Kane coming into it as well. Like you would expect them to comfortably, comfortably top that group, partly because just the you said there about United, but like, like United so far this season, it's been a kind of it's carry on from from last year in terms of they've had moments and they've had little spells in games where you've said yeah, you know what they look like a team, but they just have that still underlying vulnerability where moments can go against them and they can't they can't overcome it and just on the back of say the, of the match with Arsenal like it's a strange one because like they are just a toenail away I suppose or from Garnacho of, of actually possibly winning that game and possibly people saying well do you know what tactics and all the rest of it was played a blind or where they just had an awful lot of have had an awful lot of control in the game by just using the ball very blandly and not really doing much with it, but being capable of doing it, which is what United teams of the last few years before weren't really able to do. What United did, where they kind of seemed to draw Arsenal onto them a little bit and seemed to want Arsenal to, to come at them and then be able to try and pick a pass. And then, even though the goal came, their first goal from Rashford came from a mistake, it kind of just shows you what Ten Hag wants to do. So you can kind of see a template there where it's almost as if. United now are going to try and begin to, especially maybe more so in the bigger games, and maybe they might try and do it against Bayern Munich, depending on what players are back by the time that is, because obviously the injuries as well have decimated them a little bit. But it almost feels like in the big games now, Ten Hag wants to have that capability to almost bar, bar teams into submission a small bit in terms of how they use the ball and then try and pick a pass around them and, and do something on the, on the obviously on the counter or do something quick. And if you're looking at it from the United point of view yesterday, it almost worked to an absolute, to an absolute T. And 
the margins that we, and we mentioned it about the balls and always game the margins are just so small you look, look back that moment with Reconato's goal and Casemiro being so much more front footed at that stage than even Declan Rice if you go back and look at it like people would have been looking Declan Rice caught out Garnett, oh, Casemiro supposed to be the one who was on his last legs and yeah he was the one who actually was driving forward and had Royce spinning at that moment he's nowhere to be seen as a defensive midfielder yet a couple of moments later Royce is able to regain that composure at the back post where you know it hadn't been American in the game Gabriel does a great job blocking on Johnny Evans and they get the goal and then they win the game and that's kind of reinforces as well as well if you look at it again because the victors always write the write, write the history books that just shows where Arsenal are at as well where they can actually overcome that kind of bit of a scare they got a bit fortunate with Garnato's goal and it was offside but have that capability to not let that shake them and let United get back on top they actually were able to go on and win the game you know and I think if you're talking about it with it in terms of the Champions League I think that's where I think what Arsenal will get will get through the group I think their like their home form obviously is exceptional as well other than obviously the drop points at Fulham, I think they they should go, go through that group not not a problem because I just think they have the capability, unlike United, to be able to just ease past in those kind of games. Whereas it kind of still feels with United sometimes a lot of the time it can be a bit of a it can be a bit of a struggle. And isn't it, I think the first game for United is Bayern Munich as well, isn't it? In the group, the first game of the group, I'm almost sure it is Bayern Munich. And if you lose the first game, obviously you're you're up against it then as well. And if you you wouldn't think you know you could go to say Copenhagen and hang a hat and getting a result, especially you wouldn't do it in Galatasaray. And at the moment, despite the fact that they were so impressive at home last year, especially in the league in terms of the results and even that the game against Barcelona in the Europa League, they were able to turn it on in Europe at times at home. That's what they're gonna. That's what's gonna get them through this group if they're able to try and nick a couple of points away, away from home, and that might be enough to get them second place. That's pretty much what they're aiming for. Yeah, and all that will be to come, uh, obviously, after the international break. And, of course, as well, this Champions League group stage is the last of this type of uh, group stage because UEFA are going with the uh, the Swiss model from next season. And, obviously, this is to have more games and, uh, consequently, a uh, bigger bank balance as well, I would imagine, is, uh, is a big motivation for that. But, anyway, in the meantime, I'll be back on Friday with a bonus episode with a view from the Netherlands with Bart Fliestra which we'll touch on Sunday's game as well, as I said, Troy Parrott, Excelsior, and then uh, Vera Pau and the sort of reaction in our homeland uh, to what's happened uh, over here. And then on Monday, we'll be reviewing Ireland's international window, among other things. And of course, all the uh, the games against France and the Netherlands are going to be live on RT2, RT Player, and will be on RT Radio as well. The France game on 2FM's game on, and then, of course, uh, live blogs, updates and reaction on rt.ie slash sport. But uh, David Snade, thanks very much for taking the time. And Paul Corrie. Yeah,